Hi, and welcome to the Ravelin uh, podcast. Um, this week, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Mike McGuire. Mike, do you want to tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Um, my name is Dr. Michael McGuire. I'm um, a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Surrey. Um, I've been specialised in the digital crime, cybercrime, technology crime area now for about the last 10 years. And uh, during that time, I've written a couple of um, books in the field um, which have looked at issues about the connectivity which give rise to cybercrime and um, the ethics and control of technology as a whole. Last couple of years, I've been working on quite a major project called the Web of Profit. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea here is to really put the cybercrime picture together in a much more holistic way than has been done previously. So rather than looking at individual types of cyber crimes, you know, whether it's online stalking, or whether it's um, data theft, let's try and see how these things fit together a little bit. Um, so I've produced a, a rather large report last year called the Web of Profit. And this year I'm working on three updates to this report. The first one, which has just been published on social media enabled mm -hmm. cyber crime. And the one I'm currently completing is um, how platforms on the dark net are, are making their contribution to what's going on. Okay, Mike, we might get back to them in a minute, but I think it's a probably a good place to start is that, you know, cybercrime just generates a lot of headlines, some of them well-informed, some of them not so uh, well-informed. Uh, but it can be very difficult to sort of get an idea of what the scale of this problem is. It, it can seem huge, it can seem insignificant sometimes. Um, I mean, how do you convey how do you convey the, convey the sort of scale of the problem? Well, I think it's, it's, it's good that you um, highlight the listener to the problem of... Uh, Sort of hyperbole in the reporting of cybercrime. It's something I've argued about for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and it, we're in a kind of a, a catch-22 situation. On the one hand, certain things get exaggerated and over overestimated. And um, on the other hand, things get underestimated and not reported properly. So yeah. we're really caught between a rock and a hard place. And you might recall the kind of latest scare about the Momo um, meme that's going oh, around children's. Yeah. You know, my wife was um, asking me to monitor everything my child was watching, and then I said, well, hang on a second. And, of course, the next day it will turn out to be, to be a hoax. Yeah. Um, so, so understanding what cybercrime is and how big it is is a huge problem for researchers. And you know, you talk to any cybercrime researcher, it's the first thing they'll scratch their head about. Yeah. And the first thing any government minister asks you is, what are the metrics? What metrics can we use? How do we measure it? There are several ways in which we try to estimate um, the scale, the impact of cybercrime. One is obviously through volume. Mm -hmm. um, how many offences are committed every year. A um, number of problems with that is that a lot of offences aren't reported, a lot of offences we don't even know take place. Yeah. A lot of offences can't be categorised uh, easily under any legislation. Um, and uh, a, a lot of um, problems with uh, in terms of police figures, how they fit with uh, arrest figures. Um, for example, I did some research, the research I did last year there were a lot of people who were arrested, but they weren't actually charged. So yeah. do we count that as a cybercrime? Do we count that as a successful conviction of a cybercrime? And um, the, the other big issue in terms of measuring volume is a, a thorny problem that researchers call trans-jurisdictionality. Okay, so Mike, I'm going to have to stop you there. Trans-jurisdictionality? That's the can one. You, can you, can you explain that a yeah, little bit? Trans, it, it literally means you know, the fact that um, many cybercrimes happen beyond the jurisdiction that we obviously are dealing with which is the UK um, and cybercrime is a global crime and um, the threat vector can come from any direction at anywhere at any time to anyone mm -hmm. um, most of the cybercrime in the world um, researchers are trying to get a, a handle on if you like where the main hubs are and there's some some obvious ones that we all know about like Russia like mm -hmm. China 
Um, emerging ones like West Africa and the Balkans area of Kosovo. I mean, a lot of actually a lot of uh, people trafficking comes from Balkans, but also card fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, but interesting, Latin America, um, Brazil, countries like that are, are becoming increasingly important centres. So the point is, um, you know, if you want to say in terms of the volume of cybercrime, how serious it is, what a threat it is. Yeah. Um, really, if you're going to use crime figures, then we've only got. Crime Survey England Wales, which is the main crime data we use in the UK. Yeah, um, that's only the only place it's going to crop up. There might be attacks that crop up, um, but they're not going to register in crime figures. So that's the first problem in estimating scale and and, and seriousness. Is yeah. using crime data is a very incomplete tool. You might then a second way of doing it is to think in terms of um, industry data, the kind of stuff that Ravelin might use. You know, what what is the data we have on volumes of tax coming through? And you know, we can look at reports from from people like yourself and um, Symantec and all these kind of and cybercrime researchers certainly use that data. Yeah. The trouble is, it's not necessarily crime data right. because somebody tries to tries to breach a system. It doesn't necessarily mean that they either they've been successful or that they then complete what they've done in some way, which it turns out to be criminal. So that way is suspect, and you know there are problems with overinflation from cybersecurity companies, you know, and, and, and how they record it, and sometimes it might be a multiple, um, you know, way in which the same attack is recorded. Yeah. So that can be misleading. Third attempt is to try and say, what about vic- uh, impact on victims, impact on businesses, impact on you know individuals, and there we run into a real problem because we've got um, a, a, a mismatch between seriousness and volume. So it might okay. be it might be that um, you know some of the crimes that we're most worried about are things like sexually orientated crimes and crimes against children and so mm-hmm. on, but actually the level of those crimes is quite small when you compare it to something like fraud. Yeah, um, I mean, the fraud, frequency. The frequency. Yeah, yeah. Um, that there are actually very very few prosecutions every every year, and um, uh, there's enough to be concerned about it. But of course the level of um, the level of impact they receive in the media and the Momo um, meme is a great example of um, just you know how people were within literally. 20 24 hours, you can follow the graph of how this thing spread. Yeah. Within 24 hours, they were, you know, parents groups were involved, uh, you know, child advisory councils were involved, and it all turns out to be a hoax, and they've had to subsequently um, apologise. So, um, if you look at seriousness or impact upon victims as a yeah. way of measuring what the problem is, you run into those problems as well. So, a lot of people settle on this, this, this issue of cost. Yeah. Uh, cost, and that there's been two ways of doing that. Standardly, um, people have tried to look at the cost of cybercrime to the economy, and various people have come up with various stats here. A lot of them are very suspect because um, you, you measure the cost overall, the cost of businesses, the cost of individuals. So my recent research um, has been to kind of flip the, 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 the financial metric on, on its head a little bit and say, well, look, what we want to know is why cybercrime criminals are doing what they're doing. And what we don't really know very much about is how successful in terms of what they're getting back from their activities is. Um, so I, I tried to look at the kind of revenues that cyber criminals are making from various activities. Okay. And that's turned out to be a very interesting kind of exercise because we can start to differentiate <coughs> much more clearly between, say, activities related to fraud, to selling services, to selling particular tools. Um, and once we know a lot more about how this fits together, um, then, of course, options to cybersecurity companies, law enforcement, to how to, to, to intervene there. Because... Just to finish that thought, um, the thing that really has staggered me in the last sort of year and a half of looking at this stuff is people talk about cybercrime as a business, and it's certainly true that individuals who work in the field, particularly if you're selling hacking services or selling hacking tools, there is there are lots and lots of business-like elements to it. Yeah. 
but of course that's just there might just be one individual or one group involved in those activities and their activities fit together with other things that other people are doing, generating the revenues. You've then got to move the revenues somewhere else. You've then got to dispose of the revenues. So you really need to think of cybercrime increasingly as an economy, an yeah. economy where platforms, as in the, the legitimate economy, play a central role. And once we start to look at that, then we can start to get measures of seriousness based on how much money are they making, um, where are they making the money. Um, and I think that provides one of the clearest pictures we've got. Okay, let's drill in on that a second. Let's take one sort of... Um I'm interested to see how, who you define as a criminal in this in this world. So, uh, I think it's easy for us to think of sort of you know the kingpin, who, the person who's uh, let's suppose doing a hack on a on a on a Ashley Madison and selling the uh, the output of that and selling the credit card numbers. Uh, someone who's operating at scale and is a major scale criminal. I mean, I presume they would be accounted. But what about the person who's downstream from that? What about the person who's you know uh, could be called a script kitty or got different names, but are basically um, buying a hundred credit card numbers for a few dollars and trying to look with um, with a Deliveroo or with a you know any sort of other company out there that they're trying to to um, uh, to get goods from. I mean, do you think that they do they count in your statistics? Would they be considered criminals? Are they part of the criminal universe? What's the um well, I mean, of course, there is one very simple criteria for deciding if somebody's a criminal is if they violate a, a law, yeah. um, and then they're a criminal. Um, right. That's in the very simplistic level. But, yeah, I mean, what you hint at in your question is the, is the sort of ecosystem of criminality around cybercrime, which has evolved significantly since, you know, um, if you like, cybercrime really began in the early 1990s with the advent of the World Wide Web. That was the, yeah. the real facilitator that made networked crime in the sense that we now understand it possible. And um, I've looked a little bit at the evolution of the hacker figure, which is an interesting kind of you know criminal and cultural type of um, analysis to look at. And of course, yeah. the thing of the hacker is um, has been fascinating in that they've gone from this, if you like, the centre of all cybercrime, um, increasingly to become a kind of a service industry that feeds much bigger criminal groups. So the script kiddie right. at one point might have been somebody who was um, an initiator of cybercrime who was actually innovating in the field. Now they're just simply um, you know, using, uh, or they're being used by criminal groups to um, perform certain certain skills. Yeah. Um, some of them are, if you like, kind of small SME type individuals that will sell their skills on the dark net. Mm -hmm. um, some of them bridge the legitimate and the illegitimate world, particularly when you look at things like exploits, which is very very kind of interesting area to get into because exploits can be sold as bounty as they call it to right. to, to leading brands but of course they'll also sometimes sell those exploits to to um, criminal groups on the dark web yeah so you've got a very very complex ecosystem of criminal to criminal types and some people involved in cybercrime are actually unwittingly involved particularly in you know I think we're going to come to a bit later in our discussion um, money mules yeah let's come to that in a second because I think one of the things, I mean, I've, I've been working in this industry now for a few years, and um, one of the things that surprised me, I think, when I came into it was the amount of people who were willing to describe it as the victimless crimes. And what they mean by victimless crimes is st stuff I've sort of said already, which is that someone goes and gets a pizza or gets a, you know, some low-value item um, delivered to their house. There's been no, no one's got bashed in the head. There's been no breaking or burglary. Yeah. There's no trauma to a certain extent involved there. The victim is fairly commas here. Never great to do in a podcast. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, as a merchant, uh, you know, a multi-million dollar company, let's say, and so, you know, there's, you know, there's nothing to see here. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, I wonder is that is that true? Because there is somebody, even a kid at the other end of this, who's getting themselves involved to some degree in in something, right? Criminal, um, 
And in your research, I mean, you're saying that that obviously most people will do it and nothing worse will happen, but are you seeing them get involved or becoming vulnerable to bigger crimes and broader set of criminology than simply the what they want to get into, which is like some getting some... Very much so, yeah. This, for, in fact, this is there are huge government initiatives around this at the moment um, uh, in trying to see how there's an amplification effect. Yeah. Um, so somebody might learn some skills at school um, and then they might fiddle around, try a few basic hacks, find that it works... Um, these days, you know, kids have got access to, to all kinds of online facilities and all kinds of online tools, mm -hmm. and they'll very quickly get onto the dark net and they'll very quickly see the kind of things that are for sale there. And they might do a little bit of dabbling and they might sell something. Um, might might just be a few simple card numbers or a bit of data that they've got hold of. Yeah. Somebody might buy that, they see it's successful. Um, and there's a process of escalation, absolutely. Um, it doesn't always mean that a low-level script kiddie or a low-level hacker will turn into a kingpin. Mm -hmm. um, and very often, more often is the, the case, they get recruited by bigger groups. Yeah. Um, recruited to do what? I mean, you mentioned money bills. Can you sort of expand on that a well, little bit? Well, um, there are, uh, you know, if you look on the dark net, there are huge, huge uh, the, one of the perhaps which one of the things distinguishes cybercrime from any other um, criminal practice in the past is the volume of skills that are available for hire. Mm -hmm. um, of course, once upon a time, if you wanted to go and break, break into a bank, you would probably know somebody who would drive the getaway car, who would be the the guy who would um, you know to find the numbers on the safe. Yeah. Um, and there would, but probably that would be a criminal underground where everyone knew each other. You don't need to know each other now. Right. Um, you, you know, you, you simply can go onto these forums and these platforms and find. You know, I was looking yesterday on the dark net. There was a guy um, who was offering his services to um, break PayPal accounts. And to mess people up um, yeah. just by by defrauding PayPal and then it making it look as if somebody had done that. So in other words, pinning it on individuals. Okay. And somebody on the forum said, "Why are you doing that?" And he said, "Just because you know, okay. because it's fun, because it's can." And some, and it was this phrase: "Some people need to suffer." Okay. Um, Great. So you know, there's uh, there is a malevolent, vindictive edge to some of the things that these people are doing. But, yeah. Um, that there's yeah there's definitely an escalation there's definitely a pathway a career pathway and the government is very interested in finding ways they can intervene um, with young people at a certain stage to stop them going further down the road into into serious cybercrime yeah because when you get into the serious level of cybercriminality um, then the operations sometimes are very big and we're talking you know million dollar operations yeah um, I think maybe people what people don't appreciate it and correct me if I'm, I'm speaking incorrectly here but uh, is the degree to which organized crime has moved online. Yeah. You know, we still, I think, people of our generation maybe might still think of it as people doing shakedowns at the local bakery for, you know, protection money. Yeah. But actually, it's, it's, this is organized crime at huge scale with much less risk for far more profit, yeah. I think. So, I mean, is it true, I, I don't want to overstate these things, but is it true that people who are uh, getting into these activities, at least at a low level, are perhaps unwittingly exposing themselves to risk of organised crime or becoming some sort of unwitting victim of organised crime or unwitting, yeah. um, uh, what's the word, unwitting mule or um, tool of organised crime? Well, it's a very dangerous cr uh, question to ask a criminologist about organised crime. So, right. so we, we could be here for the next two weeks. It's one of the okay. things that you debate endlessly in the yeah. seminar room is what how much is organised? Yeah. You know, it's two people working together organised crime, or does it have to be, you know, um, a very large group of individuals? Yeah. Don't worry, I won't deter the debate too far down that road at the moment. Other to say that, you know, I did a piece of research called Organised Crime in the Digital Age a couple of yeah. years ago. Um, 
And one of the fascinating things about the way that cybercrime as an activity is evolving is the nature of organisation. So without question, um, cybercrime is predominantly organised crime. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? Um, well, you need to distinguish between about four or five different types of organisation in the cybercrime world. So, if you like, you've got traditional organised crime groups, you know, like the South American cartels and the Russian mafia and so on. Yeah. Um, right the way down to what I call swarm organisations. So these are kind of groups like Lulzsec, like Anonymous, which are organised to the extent it's bottom up. Um, that's like a flock of birds. Yeah. Um, there is organisation in the way that a flock of birds moves around together but there isn't necessarily a top-down mafia you know head honcho who's telling them what to do yeah and people tend to get very misled by thinking about organized crime in terms of the godfather um it's not that there aren't such groups there and i can tell you a bit about you know how those how those groups fit into the ecosystem but we need to think very much more about a much wider range of organizational types in the cybercrime world and probably the most predominant type of um, organized group is what i what i called in my research a hub group so there you'll get um, literally like a hub. Um, you'll get two or three individuals who are driving the activity, and around them, it's more much like a flat management structure. You'll get you'll get shells, circles of individuals involved to some degree or another within the in the in the practice, but not necessarily as a kind of a recruit or a soldier or a field um, field operator. There might be somebody who's brought in to do the mule, the laundering. Somebody yeah. who's um, involved in distributing. The, the, the kind of cybercrime tools, somebody who's got a specific skill that they, they employ. Um, so organisation, I, I, I would say, back to the original question, is is there is for sure organised cybercrime is the norm now. Okay. Which it wasn't in the 1990s, it's yeah. the norm now. But then we have to unpick a little bit about what we mean by organisation. And that's not just a kind of a, a nuanced academic debate. That, you know, well, I'll tell you what I mean by it, right? yeah. so maybe that will... Uh, I mean, is there a... I think people might like to think that there's a sort of a neat separation between people who are doing data hacks and doing cybercrime and people who are doing cr crimes like, you know, cocaine smuggling, um, prostitution, people trafficking. Yeah. Uh, and that these are two, you know, completely atomic groups that have no association with each other. One's sort of a clean victimless crime, the ones that obviously are horrible, disgusting, you know, uh, there are lots of victimless crime. Yeah. I mean, in your experience, are they that separated? I know you said there are lots of different types of organizations, but certainly. There is it possible for these organisations to be both? You know, it certainly is, and it's almost it's almost um, impossible to find groups that aren't. Yeah, don't bridge those gaps now. Um, it's uh, the the idea that the Russian mafia or Mexican drug cartels have not got cyber capacities now it would be very very foolish. And certainly, the research I've done demonstrates again and again and again that that is the case. Now, it's still the case. If you take drug smuggling yeah. as one example, um, whilst online drug sales are certainly constitute one of the main forms of cybercrime revenues, no question about that. Compared to the offline drugs market, it's still quite small. Um, so we haven't yet reached the tipping point where drugs di distributed via the internet um, are, are, is the main form of distribution. Right. But we're certainly getting there. Yeah. And if you're, um, you know, if you're a Mexican drug cartel, um, then of course it's going to be much easier to post the drugs than to try and carry them across Donald Trump's wall. Um, <laughs> you know, when it, if, if it ever appears. Yeah. Um, and these groups also are very aware that um, that they can generate revenues in other ways other than. You know, traditional organised crime activities. There was a portfolio activities, and it would usually involve prostitution, racketeering, um, more recently drugs, mm -hmm. um, protection, those kind of things, gambling. 
Um, so, you know, the traditional organised crime groups were very businesslike in terms of the, the range of revenue sources they had to bring in, and diversification has continued. Um, and one of the diversifications is um, into the cyber, cyber world. And they do it in different ways. Um, sometimes it's a sophisticated operation where they'll employ people and set up a dedicated team. Sometimes it's, it's, it's combining old-fashioned mob methods with um, cyber capacities. So, I mean, I found um, in, in my research that a lot of groups in Mexico, for example, just simply went into schools, went into universities and kidnapped somebody who um, had the capacity to, to, to you know, go online, to hack and to write code. Right. Um, and would just say, work for us or we kill your family. Um, okay. So, so that's one end of the scale. It's interesting. Um, Talk to HR about that for our recruitment. Yeah. <laughs> it's and also, just on a more level way, low-level way, street criminals. You know, once upon a time they would just beat you up and take your wallet from you. Now they realise they can get much more out of your ATM. Yeah. And you don't necessarily need to conduct a sophisticated ha hacking operation. So, what you call pin code violence, what I call pin code violence. Um, where there's an increasing number of people around the world who are just being kidnapped, tied to a chair, and tortured until they hand over their personal accounting details. Yeah. So you've got two ends of the scales where you've got old-fashioned methods being applied to the cyber world, whilst at the same time, um, without any doubt, there are more sophisticated examples of, of, um, of groups um, using cyber operations. Um, and very often, one of the interesting things in the last piece of research I, I found was the way that cyber revenues are being reinvested into crime. So about 20% of the cyber criminals I spoke to said that they, to some extent, use their revenues to either buy new equipment, to fund new operations, to set up a new server, to buy stuff on the dark net. And um, that's clearly very worrying for law enforcement because if you've reached a kind of a, a circle, a virtuous circle for the criminal anyway, yeah. um, where you generate revenue and then you invest that back in the crime, you generate further revenues, then the strength of these organisations are going to grow and grow and grow. Worrying for law enforcement, but also worrying for our listeners to some degree. I mean, I, I think many people listening to this will work for merchants, work for uh, payment providers, uh, work in sort of revenue protection for them. Um, I mean, where do you see their role in this? And is their job going to get any easier in the coming years? Unfortunately, I would have to say very much not. Um, not going to get easier. It, it's not going to get easier, no. Yeah. I think it's going to get very much harder because... It's a bit of a cliche to say uh, that there's an arms race between the criminal and law enforcement. This is, this is kind of a recurring image that the criminologists use. But there is a certain truth in it. And if there's ever a domain where it's very true, it's in the cybercrime world. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost as soon as somebody finds a way of plugging a gap, there's a new way around that gap. Right. Um, and it's not just turns out to be one, one kind of gap, um, but many, many kinds of gaps um, and many, many more ways of generating revenue. So, for example... Some of the stuff that, that you guys look at in terms of um, chargeback frauds, yeah, um, that's a lucrative way in which uh, cyber criminals make money. But it will be one of a portfolio of activities they have. That's certainly not going to be the only thing they do. Mm -hmm. And it might be that other types of things, for example, selling logins um, to entertainment companies or um, uh, selling personal IDs like passports and so on. Um, yeah, they they will fund. The, the chargeback fraud with other activities and then they will in, enhance the sophistication of what they're able to do in that domain by skills they acquire from other domains. Yeah. Um, so you've really got uh, a campaign on many fronts here and I think the in, what I unfortunately have seen is that, that um, you know people who, who, who work in the cybersecurity end of things tend to be very focused on the one issue that they have to deal with. Yeah. They don't see the bigger picture and that means they're constantly being outflanked and outmaneuvered and outthought. Okay, well, on that cheery note, Mike, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. 
Um, that's really interesting. I mean, I think it's important that we, as you say at the end there, that we sort of contextualize the sort of work that we do and see it in the broader picture. Because yeah. it is a, uh, it's sometimes easy to stay in our lanes and see the sort of Very much immediate so, yeah. consequences, but there is a broader. And criminals don't see it that way. It's, like, it's true, yeah. I can yeah. make some money from chargeback fraud, but I can also make some money another way, and uh, the two things work together. And if we're an operation which is strong, yeah. um, then you know, yeah, you might you might crack that particular nut, but then also come back stronger in some some different way. Okay. Well, look, thanks for your time. Yeah. Okay. Great. Is that the kind?